Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. We've been studying through the entire book of Acts. We started in chapter 1, verse 1. We haven't skipped anything. In fact, we've, we've focused in less on the stuff we're most familiar with. We've focused in on the strange things and the unusual things and the controversial things. And we stop and we've pause and if we're saying, what is going on here? I don't totally get it. We've worked through this together. We find ourselves today at the end of Acts chapter 19. We're on the Apostle Paul's third missionary journey. And just so that you're familiar, do you know what the main responsibilities of a missionary were when Paul was alive? This was his, he was bivocational, had two jobs. He was a missionary, and in some places where he traveled, he was able to get some type of compensation for the ministry that he did there. But in places where he went, where there was no ability to be compensated for his ministry, he supported himself by making tents. He was a leather worker. He's on his third missionary journey here. And a missionary's job in this day and age was they were sent. They felt that God himself was sending them all over the world to tell people with their words who Jesus is, what he did, and why it matters. Now, let me tell you something. If, let me ask you this. If today, 2022, you have an idea, you have a marketing idea. I know in the room, we have a lot of entrepreneurs and hobbypreneurs and all other kinds of preneurs, or at least you watch Shark Tank. How many of you have watched Shark Tank? Okay, yeah, okay, some of you've cheered. All right, yeah. Interesting, it's interesting. There's a lot you can, it's entertaining, but you can also learn a lot about you can learn a lot about business. If you've got an idea that you want to start, you can learn a lot by watch availing yourselves of some of these shows. Can I tell you or ask you, in 2022, if you have an idea, a product, a business that you want lots of people to know about it, okay? It's called marketing. How do you get your idea to market? What are all of the different resources and tools that you could use to tell people? more people and spread the idea that you had this great idea that you had this great product this great business what are some of the ways you could get the word out social okay okay, the internet i heard right you've got the google machine right you've got wikipedia right awesome source of information it was funny i told you uh, a couple months ago um they were doing a, a discussion in the small groups in our elementary kids ministry and the question the discussion leaders have who do you ask when you don't understand something? And the number one answer across all our kids, Siri. <laughs> number two answer, Google, right? It's like they, they're just by default. We didn't have Google when I grew up, so I had to settle for my parents. And if they didn't know, like my five-year-old right now is, is really into NASCAR, okay? I, I don't know how that happened, but he's, he has no attention span for anything, but we'll watch cars on TV drive in circles for three and a half hours. I don't. Get it? But he does it. He's obsessed. He wants to know with every car, who's, who's that driver? How many career wins have? Where was he born? And I keep saying, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And his answer, can you look up it? Can you look up it? And I finally have to now have to put a limit. I will Google five things an hour. After that, you got to wait <laughs> until the next hour. Um, 
So you've got the internet, you've got social media, right? You know, uh, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, and whatever 30 new things are gonna come up in the next year, right? What other opportunities do you have today? What other resources do you have to get your idea, your product into the minds of other people? What else you got? Television, word of mouth, radio, billboards, print media. Do you understand? Say it again. Oh, yeah, the, 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 the airplane that's pulling the banner behind it when you're at the beach telling you that crabs are available for $13.99 down the street. Listen, if they're selling a bushel for $13.99, they're not good crabs. I'm just telling you right now. Be immediately suspicious. Now, we could go on about this, and sometimes I have a problem taking these things for too long, and we run out of time for the good stuff. What I'm telling you is that Paul didn't have any of those resources really available to him. Think about how hard his job was. He knew God Almighty was telling him, you need to go and spread the truth about my son, who he is, what he's done, and you need to spread it to the world. He can't just, he doesn't have 300,000 followers on Twitter. He can't just write out one sentence, press one button, and have 300,000 people see that in front of their face. He does not have any type of mass media. He can't just get an interview. He can't just do a podcast. He doesn't have billboards. He doesn't really have print media. In fact, Jesus's, the gospels hadn't even been put in print yet. So you think about this assignment he has as a missionary. What would you do if you lived in ancient times and you had not just a good product, but you were convinced I have the true answer for the entire world. I feel God wants me to go tell people, how do I do this? It's only going to happen by talking. And it's only going to happen face to face at first. But now you could do a brilliant you could do an interesting study on how he used networking and how, why did he choose population centers? Why did he go to places? Why did he go to cities and not little tiny isolated remote villages? He did understand how word traveled back in the day, and he did work within that. And if you're curious about how ancient, I don't, marketing is a terrible word to use in conjunction with Christianity. Okay, can you just give me a little bit of grace to say if you're, I, Paul was very savvy and very spirit guided in why he chose to spend the majority of his time in cities. And you can study that on your own time, have a blast with it. But what I, the summary of it, Paul understood if I can get to where the most people are, and if I within that crowd, densely populated city, if I can find the most likely people to at least hear me out one time, I'll start from there. And if I can influence people in the cities, then those people in the cities can be influenced by the Holy Spirit to reach out from there and I can move on to the next city. And so he was really savvy very spirit-guided, very intelligent about how he spent his time and his resources. But I just want you to understand his whole, quote-unquote, success in being a missionary depended upon his ability to quickly locate people who would listen to him. 
he had to talk. So that's why most of the time he started in a synagogue because at the very least, he was a Jew, he was trained as a rabbi, and the custom in that day was anybody who was trained as a rabbi, especially someone who had been to Jerusalem, if they show up at synagogue, they're going to be given an opportunity to speak. So he started there because at the very least, he thought these people have a familiarity with the scriptures, and I'll be given a platform, and I can speak. But yet, as his ministry continues, you'll see any time, whether it was in the marketplace, whether it was in a courtroom, whether it was in someone's home, whether it was at a breakfast by a stream, like we read at one point, at a prayer breakfast with several ladies. A women's prayer breakfast was the first convert in all of Europe. Paul had to find and wanted to find people who would listen to him. So in Ephesus, he found that. And at the time that the story picks up, he had been there for two years. And then there's this very interesting transition. Things were going very well in Ephesus. Um, in fact, uh, we're going to start at verse 23, but in, uh, I'm sorry, we're going to start in verse 21. But right before it in verse 20, Luke writes, the message about the Lord spread widely throughout the city and had a powerful effect. The message of the Lord spread widely throughout the city and had a powerful effect. The message of the Lord spread widely throughout the where? I want to tell you what, we throw the word revival around a lot, and that's not bad, but there's a difference between revival and spiritual excitement. I grew up in Pentecostal churches where we believed and we sought the promise of the Father that's repeated and offered throughout Acts, that there is a, that after salvation, there is a distinct and subsequent experience from the Holy Spirit that he wants to release to his followers to supply to us a special power to be his witnesses. Do you know what a witness is? Come on, Johnny Depp, Amber Heard, some of you know what I'm talking. You court TV people. <coughs> you know what a witness is? Someone who has what? first-hand knowledge of something. They've experienced it for themselves. That's part of, but not all of, what makes a credible witness. God understands that if he's entrusting, I, this is a mouthful, I don't, want, I don't want to just camp here. God's strategy for reaching the world is his church. And all we don't have to do the original work. Jesus did that. We simply have to repeat to people the truth of what Jesus did, who he is, and how that's worked out in our lives. But God understands if he's going to trust that to people, we better be confident. We better be bold. We better be certain and sure that it's not just something we've read on paper, but that we have first-person experience in the power of a risen Jesus. And wouldn't it make sense to you that God would understand that and say, listen, I don't want any of my kids to walk through life feeling that they're a little wobbly in their confidence to tell somebody about what my son has done. Therefore, I will send to them power to be what? Because when you've seen something with your own eyes, even if people won't listen, you don't change your mind. You know what you saw. 
You know what you heard. You know what you experienced. I grew up with that promise in front of me, and I grew up in that, and I have experienced the power of the Holy Spirit released upon me, released within me. And no matter what anybody says, I am, I am a witness to the true power of the resurrected Jesus in me. And that hasn't diminished over the years. Any time I might, you know, something might come in my life that makes me feel, that may want to make me feel wobbly about my faith or, 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 or lessen my confidence in Christ. All I have to do is just experience again the living Christ upon me and within me through the Holy Spirit, and it just provides for me that power of being a witness. That's at the root of what Pentecost means. Spiritual excitement, though, growing up in a Pentecostal church, what we called revival happened inside the four walls of the church. And it was wonderful, whether it meant exuberance and praise. One day we just, God just rushed into the service and we just kind of suspended all activities and just worshiped until we felt like it was time to go. Or whether it was a day where there was a move of deep repentance. God was dealing with sin in the room and it was very quiet. And there were people kneeling and bowing and confessing and asking God to forgive them. Maybe it was a day where the Spirit of the Lord was present to heal and people who were sick and ill, God fell in a special way and was releasing the power to heal. Those are wonderful experiences. Those are wonderful moments that God blesses us with. But I think there's a difference between that kind of spiritual excitement and the revival we read about in Ephesus because it says the power of the Lord spread widely throughout the city. To me, one of the hallmarks of a true move of God is when it affects the entire city, not just the corporate church gathering on a Sunday. That's what I really pray for above all else, not just that God visits all of the houses of worship in Baltimore today, because the truth is he is everywhere. But you know what we need in addition to a fresh touch of God in our gatherings is we need that fresh touch of God to result in deeply transformed lives so that when you walk out of here, you're carrying that presence with you and it tumbles over into the community. And over two years, that's what was happening in Ephesus. What was, what was going on in these home groups and in synagogue and in these little circles of believers was having a deep impact on the community. We already saw some of it. Some of it was that, um, you remember what we read last week, is that a great fear fell over the city about the reality of demonic powers and Christians brought their very expensive magic books and they burned them to the tunes of millions of dollars. And that made... No one organized this. These were believers who were new in their faith, who were walking close to Jesus, but still had some habits in their life that they didn't realize were sinful yet. God was cleaning them up as they went along progressively. I want you to know this. You might think, well, pastor, God hasn't dealt with me about what I listen to. God hasn't dealt with me about how I spend money. God hasn't dealt with me about what I drink or what I eat. God hasn't dealt with me. Okay, that's fine, but he'll get to it. There's things that God deals with me about that as he deals with me about it, I once I've 
once, and I try and be soft and listen right away. But as God brings something to my mind about an attitude, about a viewpoint, about a habit, about, I will tell you what happens is first, there's a look, sometimes there's a sense of denial, like is that, is that really true? Is that accurate? Is this, is this a spiritual thing? Is this just my mind? Once I recognize that it's the Lord, and usually that happens, the, the longer you walk with God, the quicker you're able to differentiate his voice from yours. But what happens is there comes this sorrow in my heart for two reasons. One is I recognize there's something in my life that's not pleasing to the Lord. The second sorrow is I have been like this for years, and I didn't know it. Or I knew it, but I didn't know it was sinful and displeasing to the Lord. And this happens ongoing, and it's not meant to depress us. It's meant to purify us. You see that happening in Ephesus. You see brand new believers who loved Jesus, who believed in Jesus, who repented for their sins, put their belief in him. And then as they grew and as God brought experiences into their life, they're like, you know what? These books that we have in our homes that we've been reading, that's demonic stuff. And we didn't realize it was demonic. They didn't even sell it on eBay. Do you understand what I'm telling you here? Those were tangible assets that were worth millions of dollars, and they didn't even think, you know what, let's get rid of them, let's sell them at the yard sale so at least we can get some cash back and maybe do some good things with it. They said, there's a whole economic lesson here that I won't get, go down that trail today, but they said, you know what, there's something in my life that needs to be removed. It has tangible value, and I don't even want to profit from it because my profit is going to be someone else's bondage. I... I could teach on this all morning because some of you know, you know, to achieve some of my family's financial goals years ago, we started an eBay business and basically eBay is reselling stuff. You're trying to get things and sell them for more than, it's not rocket science. I'm in auctions on my day off all the time and I constantly come across things that I know are extremely profitable really quick. And God, at the very outset of this, settled it in my heart. There's certain, and I'm not gonna go deep into it, there's certain things I will not buy and resell. Even if I can make money, I more than tithe on it. It takes care of needs for our family. It's helping us to achieve some financial goals that we need to accelerate in this season of our life. I'm just, the Lord stamped that on my heart. And I know if I share it, it might become a rule for you. And it's just, it's a rule for me. But I see that in this city. They, they were so young in their faith, but they understood we need to break our ties with some of this stuff that we're spending our money on. And we're gonna take the loss. We're not even gonna pass it on to somebody else so that they get tied up. We're gonna burn it. That, I'm telling you, it was sweeping throughout the city and there was a great revaluing. In fact, All these people that were getting safe were starting to have a a negative impact on part of the Ephesian economy. And you're going to see that here. Let me read to you. I wrote to myself two minutes for introduction. I'm very sorry. Let me move faster. I'm sorry. I I, I do apologize. I just wanted to make sure. I realize I I need to inspire you to be interested to dig into some of this stuff. So um, verse 21, afterward... Now, that word afterward, I just told you what just happened. They just got done with their book burning, and Luke writes that the gospel was having a powerful impact on the city. After that scene, interestingly enough, Paul felt compelled by the Spirit. There's another whole sermon. Have you ever felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to do something? To start something, to stop something, to continue something, to discontinue something whole message on that but he felt by this 
compelled by the Spirit. Here's what Luke's going to do. He's going to give you a preview of the rest of the book. If you read ahead, here's the table of contents. To go over to Macedonia, then to go to Achaia, then to go back to where? Jerusalem. And after that, he said, now, does this sound familiar? I must go on to Rome. So he's in the middle of what looks like and what actually is a sovereign move of God throughout the city. He's been there a couple years. He's preached his heart out. People have listened. Some people have surrendered their lives to Jesus. Other people have resisted. But the people who have surrendered their lives to Jesus, what they're finding is this organic appetite to be like Jesus. And it's resulting in them making very deep changes in their entire life. So Paul feels compelled for whatever reason, Luke doesn't tell us what went in all that. But he says, I need to go to Macedonia. I need to go to Achaia. I need to do those things before I go to Jerusalem. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but if you read uh, 1 Corinthians 16, Romans 15, Paul tells you why he went to Macedonia and Achaia before going to Jerusalem. Do you know why? Do you know what one of his primary goals was in going to Macedonia and Achaia? He was going there to receive something. Yes. He had a heart for the suffering believers in Jerusalem. They were really suffering. And so, isn't this beautiful? He's going to travel to Gentiles, receive offerings from them, and then take those free will offerings, collect them all, and deliver them to the saints in Jerusalem who were primarily Jews. Don't you see how just even the gospel was bringing all kinds of deep ethnic and racial healing in all of this? It's a really beautiful story. And then he says, I must go on to Rome. Now, did Paul eventually make it to, uh, spoiler alert, okay, some of you read the end of the book. Did Paul eventually get to Rome? Do you think at this point he had any idea how he'd get there? Some of you have read the story, and I can't wait till we get there. We're going to get there. Something happens in Jerusalem that Paul did not see coming. And God used what happened in Jerusalem in this very unconventional way to actually get Paul from Jerusalem to Rome, but probably not in any way that he could possibly imagine. I spent a lot of time there. Let's move, let's move on. Um, before I read this next section, I need to, I want to show you something. Okay, so they're going to get a video ready. This story that we're going to spend the next 20, 25 minutes studying today before we, before we uh, dismiss, it has to do with two buildings, two structures. They're very famous. And for you to really understand this story, we need to understand these two landmarks that were in the city of Ephesus. And fortunately, we have some good tools um, through the Google machine and the YouTube machine. I was able to uh, kind of curate and, 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 and trim down some, some, uh, some visuals on what these are. So the first thing we're going to look at is the Ephesian temple to Artemis or Diana. They're both interchangeable names. One was the Greek name, one was a different name. But I want you, let's take a look at this video. I want you to see where this next scene takes place. Let's go ahead and take a look. <coughs> the cult of Artemis had a powerful following here. During the Roman period, prominent generals and politicians would come to Ephesus to offer sacrifices to the statue of Artemis, also known as Diana. 
While many other gods were worshipped here at Ephesus, Artemis was by far the most prominent deity in the first century. The cult of Artemis in Ephesus goes back hundreds of years prior to the Greeks. Our first record of a temple to Artemis here is one that was destroyed by flood in the 7th century BC. Under orders from King Croesus of Lydia, it was rebuilt out of marble around 550 BC, but that version was destroyed by fire in 356 BC. Local myth says that Artemis was away helping Olympias give birth to Alexander the Great when the fire broke out. Allegedly, that's why Artemis was unable to protect her shrine from destruction. The temple to Artemis was rebuilt yet again, but this time on an even grander scale, taking 120 years to finish. Historians such as Pliny and Antipater even called it one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. During the time of Paul, this temple to Artemis was one of the largest and most impressive structures in the entire Mediterranean region, about four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. Here is an awesome recreation of the structure at a park in Istanbul, Turkey. According to Pliny, the Temple of Artemis was situated on a platform about 425 by 239 feet. The temple itself was 352 by 163 feet with 127 columns that were 60 feet tall and over six feet thick. 36 of these columns were sculptured and overlaid with gold. The temple was built northeast of the city on marshy soil to protect the structure from earthquakes. At one time, the waves of the Mediterranean could actually come right up to one side of the temple. The cult of Artemis dominated here in Ephesus until the influence of Christianity eclipsed it over the next 200 years after Paul. Paul who brought the message of the gospel here so long ago that disrupted the local trade in small Artemis statues. The Goths, a tribe from present day Germany, destroyed this temple in 262 AD and the ruins of it were reused in other building projects. And now, all that remains are these foundations and column fragments of what was once considered a true wonder of the ancient world. It's fascinating to me. The power of the gospel so overtook that city. If you listen to that, two times prior to Paul's ministry in Ephesus, it had been destroyed and they rebuilt it because it was important to them. It was central to their economy. It was central to their worship. 200 years after Paul leaves Ephesus, it's destroyed again. And this time, they just take the scrap and build other things because that city no longer worships that God anymore. Wouldn't you like to see our community change like that? Wouldn't you like to see your neighborhood change like that? So just to put a summary statement to make sure you understand where this takes place, the Greek god Artemis, Diana, they built that temple for her. And you heard, he said 127. My research said 126 columns, potato, potato, 60 feet tall. A, in the, this is just grotesque. I know we have little ears, so I'll just say this one time and we'll just keep cruising. The actual goddess that they worshipped, at some point in their history, a black meteorite fell from the sky 
and it was this black meteorite that they put in the center of the temple. And the black meteorite either looked like or was, <clears throat> or was fashioned to look like this grotesque image of a woman with dozens and dozens of breasts wrapped up like a mummy. And it was used to worship fertility and sex. And that became central to their economy. People came from what they said, what Demetrius said, well, all over the world, really all over Asia, to that city to worship the God. And I'll just, because I know we have little ears in here today, um, you can imagine if you have a goddess that represents what she did, exactly the type of worship that took place. Okay. And it was a big part of the economy. It was a big part of their tourism. Okay. Uh, the, so 127 pillars, 60 feet high. Fast forward, it was so destroyed that it took until 1869 for us to even find that much of it. And it wasn't until 1965 that they unearthed the main altar. 262 AD, it was completely that whole structure you saw. One of the seven ancient wonders of the world was completely destroyed. Why? At the root of it, because Christianity had supplanted idolatry as the way of the Ephesian city. And we're going to read why that was an issue and what resistance the locals had. Those who had not decided to follow the true way of Jesus, the local trade guilds got to a point several years after Paul was there that they had had enough. So let me uh, let me let me read on here. I'll start at verse 21, and then we'll just keep cooking the whole way to verse 30. Afterward, Paul felt compelled by the Spirit to go over to Macedonia and Achaia before going to Jerusalem. After that, he said, I must go on to Rome. He sent his two assistants, Timothy and Erastus, ahead to Macedonia while he stayed just a little while longer in the province of Asia. All you need to see here, this is unique to Paul. Paul doesn't like traveling by himself. If you read through Acts, he preferred having company to being by himself, but he recognizes he's wrapping things up in Ephesus. So he sends an advanced team ahead of him to Macedonia to kind of prep the itinerary so that when he arrived, arrived, he caught up with them in a few days, they could hit the ground running. Verse 23, about that time, you know, you can kind of sense uh, Luke's going to drop the other shoe here. Serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the capital W way. Now, we'll come back to that in a second. This is the second time in this chapter, the third time in Acts, that the followers of Jesus, the Christians, those who had repented and believed and were following Jesus and wanting him to have his way in their life, they're referred to collectively as this group called the way, okay, which I think is awesome. I think it's beautiful. I think it's so practical. Let's keep reading. The trouble began with Demetrius, a silversmith who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek goddess Artemis. Now, without even reading anymore, can you understand why this guy might have an issue with Christians? He's a silversmith. He had a large business. It was a manufacturing business. And what was he making? Souvenirs, tchotchkes. If you go to any major land, you go to the Statue of Liberty, you know what you're going to find? A souvenir shop by the dozen. As an adult, I loathe souvenir shops. As a kid, I lived for them. You can buy all kinds of trinkets and tchotchkes and junk. 
If you go to Statue of Liberty, you know what? You can buy a little miniature Statue of Liberty in any size you want. If you go to, uh, you know, you go to the Colosseum in, in Rome, you go to the Eiffel Tower in Paris, everywhere you go in the world where you've got something like this, there's souvenir shops, they make big money selling you tchotchkes. Big money. Well, so did Demetrius. And so did all the other business owners like him. They were taking silver and making little miniature Dianas. And they'd sell them in their shops so people could take them home and and worship her. He kept many craftsmen busy. So he had lots of other craftsmen who work for him. So he's the business owner and he's got other people working in his shop in the back room taking silver and making little Dianas and then they're selling them at a significant markup to all the people in the city and all the people from the world who are coming to town to celebrate and worship Diana. And he's upset and he's going to tell you why. Verse 25, let me keep reading. He called them together, the craftsmen, That's the them. So this starts with employees and other similar shop owners. He calls them together along with others employed in similar trade and addressed them as follows. Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business. But as you've seen and heard, this man, Paul, has persuaded many people That handmade gods aren't really gods at all. He's done this not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the entire province. Hold just for a second. You know you're making headway when your detractors are giving you backhanded compliments of how effective you are. It's almost like the CEO from Pepsi, like calling a press conference and saying, listen, you know Coke is gobbling up our market share. They're putting all these really cool machines and Wawa's around the world with 800,000 different combinations of sodas. And you can touch the screen and hit a button. They're gobbling up all of our market share. We need to do something about this. So they're not advocates or fans of Coke, but they're saying these guys are gobbling up our market share. Demetrius is saying the same thing. You know this man Paul is causing us trouble because he's convincing people that our tchotchkes aren't really gods. Well, duh. You made it in your sweatshop. It's not a God. It's a little thing that you made. It has no power over you. It's not going to make you feel better when you're sick. It's not going to bring you food. You're not going to be, it's, you know, your real God is your appetite for sex and wealth. And that's what you're bound to. Paul wasn't going around telling people to burn their idols. He was just saying, listen, these things aren't God's dummies. Think about it for a second. Leroy made it in the back room over there. Sammy put that together in that shop down the street. You really think those things are gods? They're not gods. Someone made that. You pay 20 bucks for it. It's on your shelf next to your, you know, your miniature Eiffel Tower. And they didn't have it yet. So, but you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? This is what he's incensed about. He keeps going. First, he's saying, this guy's after our business. But now watch this. Of course, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business. Now he's going to appeal to their civic pride. I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will lose its influence. 
And that Artemis, this magnificent goddess, worshipped throughout the world, ruthless throughout Asia, she'll be robbed of her great prestige. At this, their anger boiled. So it starts as a bunch of business people who share his same trade that come together, and Demetrius says, listen, y'all, we have a problem. Look at the charts. The line is moving down. Profits are sliding. Sales are slowing. We're not, this is bad news. We're gonna have to start letting people go. We might have to shut down our shops. The, The life we live profiting on people's appetite for sex and wealth and a good time, it's gonna be impacted negatively. And we can't stand by and let this happen. Not only that, but Artemis, this big, powerful God is gonna be made less powerful if we don't protect that building. How powerful is Artemis really if she needs Demetrius and all these other tchotchke makers to protect her dignity? Well, they got these people fired up. Now watch what happens here. There's another message here on mob psychology, but I won't go there this morning. Soon, the whole city was filled with what? Confusion. The whole city, they're confused. They hear probably this anger boiling up. So what do they do? They all rush to find out what's up. They rush to the amphitheater. Oh, there's another building we're gonna see in a moment. Everyone rushed to the amphitheater. They're dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus who were two of Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia that didn't move on ahead. So they grab, they grab two of Paul's traveling companions. This is happening rapid fire. Verse 30, Paul wanted, I love this. Paul's like, what's going on? Well, these people are really upset about the Christians in town and they're all gathering in the amphitheater. They're gonna get really angry. Well, let me go talk to them. He wants to go in, but the believers wouldn't let him. Why not? A lot of, I'm working through a lot today. What's that? It wasn't safe. They're just saying, listen, Paul, your message is good, but if you go in there, that many people, that's a death wish. We don't think that's, God's gonna, God knows when you're gonna die, but it's not gonna be today if we can help it because you have too much to offer. Don't die on this hill. Some of the officials of the province, some of the higher up political leaders who were friends of Paul, also sent a message saying, don't go down there. Don't go down to that protest right now. It's not safe for you. Don't risk your life by entering the amphitheater. Amphitheater. We'll hold, we'll hold right here for a second. Amphitheater. Why don't we take, there's a one-minute video I want to show you, okay, of what, the amphitheater actually still stands, and it's marvelous. I don't know if any of you have been there. The acoustics there are world-renowned. Just take one minute and get an idea of where this, this assembly is happening. Let's watch this last video. Well, we're in the amphitheater in Ephesus, a 25,000-seater Roman entertainment center. And this features in Acts 19. Paul was here for two years, 
Many people became Christians and they turned away from their old lives and their occult practices. In fact, Luke tells us in Acts 19 that 50,000 pieces of silver worth of occult materials were burned in the city of Ephesus as people said, we're now following Jesus. Well, this caused a riot and uproar. Demetrius, who sold little statues to the, of idols to the goddess Diana, worshipped here in Ephesus, he said, these people are taking away our money and everyone from Ephesus on one particular day started gathering here in the, this very amphitheater. They sat on these seats and they started chanting and shouting, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Paul's life was in danger. He had to flee the city. All of Ephesus was in uproar because of the impact of the message of Jesus Christ. And that message is still transforming our world today. get an idea this is a 25,000 seat amphitheater that's filling up with an angry Demetrius with angry guildsmen with confused and curious citizens with some other group of people who just heard Paul's name and see a couple of his buddies they grab those two guys they drag them into the amphitheater let me keep reading um, verse uh, 32, inside the amphitheater, the people were all shouting, but they weren't shouting the same thing. One group's chanting one thing and another group's chanting another. Everything was in, second time we see this word, confusion. In fact, Luke writes this down, most of them didn't even know why they were there. They hear yelling, they hear angry people, and they say, you know, their feet just start taking them there. Now, some of you are like this. Some of you hear sounds of anger and danger, and you say, let me take the other street, and the other 99% of it, let's just go see what's going on down there. I don't really want to get involved. But then you get there, and when you find confusion, you're very vulnerable to hop on board with whatever the predominant thought is. Now, I'm, again, I'm not going to go down the whole trail of mob riot psychology. That's another course for another day. And you would hope your pastor's not an expert in riot psychology. So, um, but I did do a lot of nerding out on this. Verse 33, the Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander forward. Now, is he the same as the Alexander we read about later? Don't know. Maybe so. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander forward and they told him, you know, explain the situation to everybody. He motioned for silence in an amphitheater of 25,000 seats when people are already angry. How do you think that went over? Let's keep reading. He motioned for silence to speak, but when the crowd realized he was a Jew, now we, now we get some ethnic issues here. They started shouting again. Now, I just let this settle in. They kept it up for about two hours. They chanted this. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They chanted those words. There's no second verse. There's no pre-chorus. There's no chorus. There's no bridge. That's it. Two hours. Why? For what? I'd give up after two minutes. Have you ever watched people at a baseball game or a football game try and start the wave unsuccessfully? It's like how many times... How many times are you going to really give it if it's not taking on before you give up? Two hours. What would that do to a human being after two hours of shouting for two hours? The same thing. 
what in the world is going on here? Um, let's keep reading. Let's 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 finish out the let's finish out the story. At last, the mayor mayor was able to quiet them down enough to speak. Citizens of Ephesus, he said, everyone knows that Ephesus is the official guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, whose image fell down to us from heaven. I'll leave that alone today because I'm about out of time, but let me keep reading this. Since this is an undeniable fact, you should just stay calm. Don't do anything rash. You've brought these men here. They've stolen nothing from the temple. They've not spoken out against our goddess. Verse 38. If Demetrius and the craftsmen have a case against them, courts are in session. The officials can hear the case at once. Then if, if there's, another what he's saying is, if there is a legitimate legal infraction here, if they've stolen your business, if they've taken your money, if they've committed a crime against you, this is not the way we resolve it. By grabbing two men without trial and pulling them in front of us, chanting about how great Art- Artemis doesn't need us to, ch- if she's as great as she is, she doesn't need you to chant for her for two hours. Let them make formal charges, verse 39, and if there are complaints about other matters, they can be settled in a legal assembly. Now, go to verse 40. I am afraid, here's, here's, here's the, he's basically saying, guys, calm down. Please calm down. Calm down because mom's, mom's going to come home soon. I'm afraid we're in danger of being charged with rioting by the Roman government since there's no just cause for all this commotion. And if Rome demands an explanation, we will not know what to say. So underneath all he's trying, I want to be understanding. Let's bring this down. But here's the big deal. We don't want to be slaughtered by the Romans because this whole thing we're doing right now is strictly verboten by the Romans. They do not like civil unrest. And if you know anything about the Roman Empire, when they sensed civil unrest, they swooped in and crushed it violently. And so what they're saying is, listen, I'm going to, the mayor who I don't see any reason to indicate that the mayor is a believer, and yet God used the mayor somehow, some way, to get the people to be quiet enough to listen to first a logical explanation and then a serious warning. And then verse 41, Luke concludes this whole episode with such an economy of words, I can only explain it as divine. Then he dismissed them. Do you see the next three words? And they dispersed they had just got done chanting for two hours he closes the service and says listen this is all well and good but it's a waste of your time if you have valid issues then let's deal with it the right way take them to court and let the court settle this otherwise we need to disperse because if you keep this up we're in danger of being crushed by the romans and they're like you know what I'm hoarse anyway, I'm tired. He dismissed them, they dispersed. Do you know this story could have ended very differently? How could it have ended differently? Say what? Murder of who? Paul, his companions. And sometimes when we read through the lives of 
the apostles and the martyrs. It happens, doesn't it? But not this day. Because God's kingdom still had a job for those men to do. And even in spite of pushback, threat, adversity, God's kingdom work was preserved. And it kept moving forward. Let me just give you three application statements because I need to close. Here's three things. There's probably, I came up with 13. There's probably 1,300 at least things that you could pull out of this passage. I've not had the privilege of digging as deep into this as I did. And I read through the story at first. I was fascinated by the history. I was fascinated by the story of how successful the gospel was in changing the culture of the city just based on archaeological finds and how that supports. Isn't it cool when archaeology, we shouldn't be shocked, but it supports exactly the history that the Bible tells? Exactly the history of it. No way should a temple that big be so destroyed in a city that cared so much about Artemis unless over the next 200 years, Christianity succeeded in supplanting their trust and idolatry to the point where they said, we're not rebuilding it again. Let's just use it and build other stuff. As convinced as those people were that Artemis was their true God, where are the Artemis followers today in 2022? But where are the hundreds of millions, perhaps into the billions, of followers of the one true God? He proved over time. He reigns supreme. Quick application. I see this in verse 23 when they describe Christianity as the way. Christianity, I see this, it's more than a set of beliefs that you accept. It's an entire new way of living. When I went to high school, way back, way back in the 1900s, we had a class in my sophomore year called American Civics, and they taught us about Republicans, Democrats, independents, please relax. Here's my point. When I went to school and we were taught academically, they said, well, here's the party platform of what Republicans support and believe in. And it was a list of things. Here's what the Democrats believe in. And it was a list of things. Here's what independents believe in. And that was this. And pretty much at that point, they're like, okay, one of our assignments was read through them and decide which of those you most closely align with and you write a paper about it. I want to tell you that whatever conclusion you came through, you basically came to a point where I said, okay, these are pretty much a group of beliefs that I have. I guess I'm a Republican. Changed nothing about the way that we lived. It was just a set of statements. I want you to know Christianity was never, and it is not simply, a list of things. You say, you know what, yeah, I'm eight out of ten on those beliefs. I'll, that doesn't change anything about you. This church, these believers were called the way. Because their following of Jesus was not simply a set of doctrine that they believed about who God was, who Jesus was, what salvation is. They didn't have an entrance exam. They weren't given a, a Word document with a sign here if you commit to following. it was, Don't get me wrong, there, there is belief included in Christianity, but Christianity is not simply limited to just believing certain things and taking on, well, I'll go to church 2.4 times a month on average over a 52-week cycle, 
I'll give X amount of dollars. I'll serve X amount of hours. I won't cuss in front of people. I'll change the, I'll change if you, I'll adopt, I'll vote this way. I'll cheer for this. I'll boo that. Christianity is not a set of beliefs you take up. It is a power that takes you up. That's what it is. Trust me, if you have a Christianity that's just a set of beliefs and you feel no power, no change, you've not found Christianity. You found religion. Religion attempts to change you from the outside in. If you think this, say this, don't think this, don't say this, start doing this, stop doing that. If you do all these things, it will trickle down and change the inside. That's religious external change, and that's the way the enemy operates. It will leave you feeling pressure, guilt, or pride. Christianity is a power that takes you up. When you're saved and the Holy Spirit is fused within you, the Bible says you will know you've been sealed, that a new, a new someone lives in you that supplies you power. You become a witness to the reality of everything that you believe. That's the Christianity that I experience. That's the Christianity that I know. I didn't know a whole lot about theology. All I knew is I needed to be saved. I needed to be forgiven. And I knew Jesus could do it if I asked. And when I did at that moment, I felt someone come live in me. It changes everything. It changes everything. Application number two, some of the strongest evidence of a person's salvation is a deeply transformed life. We see that in Ephesus. They weren't just excited about coming to church and singing songs and getting teaching. They did those things. But you know what you see in the lives of these believers in Ephesus? Their faith in Jesus transformed their whole life. It transformed what they read. It transformed how they spent their money. Do you see the economic impact? People were getting saved in that city and they stopped going downtown to practice all the worship sex trade stuff at the temple. They stopped buying as many souvenirs. They weren't buying these little relics because they recognized those things aren't gods. They don't have any influence over me. They're not going to give me freedom from my own licentious desires. And Paul was saying, of course, find true freedom in Jesus. And it was having such an impact on the city that it impacted their economics. Wouldn't it be something if in the communities where we live, certain businesses that flourish on feeding people's sinful appetites would have to close because people were being converted and being set free from the bondage those things had? That's when you know God's up to something. Because we can get all excited here this morning, and that's good, and that's fine, and we should. But if I see you 12 hours later, and it's not still there, what really happens? What needs to happen is in the house of God. It started among believers who got saved. Their old appetites were being, that were controlling them were being set free by Jesus progressively, and it impacted the way they spent their money. Their whole life was deeply trained. Can I ask you this? I could ask you, are you saved? And I'll ask you that again in about a minute and a half. Can you honestly say, because of Jesus, I'm living a deeply transformed life? Oh, I heard that. That encouraged my heart. Someone's, yes, I can. 
Praise God for that testimony. Yes, I can. If you're not, don't you want that? Don't you, don't you, want, don't you want a deeply, deeply transformed life? Something that goes down underneath the externals and goes to your wants, your desires, your thoughts, your ideas, your imaginations. Read through this passage again and again and again and you will see story after story, marker after marker that shows the Christians in this city for all the things they didn't have that you and I have. You understand in your smartphone, if you have a Bible app, you've got hundreds of translations of the Bible at your fingertips. They had none of that. They had the, they had the, Old, the Old Testament scriptures and they had the eyewitness testimonies of the apostles. They had Paul, and you know what? They had their personal experience with Jesus. Number three. It's on the back of my last page. This is what happens when I, when I do the back-to-back print on page. I lose track of where I'm at. God will preserve, protect, and continue his work, even despite inevitable pushback. Worship team, why don't you come? If anything else, I want you to hear me. I want you to, I'm going to say something that's very, very honest and very transparent, and it's not easy to hear. It's true, and it's not meant to be discouraging. It's meant to inspire you. Somewhere along the line, every believer in that city came to a place where they said, you know what, I need to get, I want to get really serious about my walk with God. Now, I don't know, when my five-year-old says, Dad, show me your serious face, it doesn't look joyful. It, you know, you're supposed to look like really constrained and focused. When I say getting serious about your walk with Jesus, I don't mean this feeling of hardness and anger and striving should come over your face. But haven't you felt compelled by the Spirit multiple times throughout your life to walk more closely with Jesus? Whatever language you want to use, to get more serious, to be more devoted, more committed. And here's what I hear a lot. Well, Pastor, I just know every time in my life I've decided to get serious about my walk with Jesus, what do they say next? Something bad happened. I got pushed back. I struggled. I got discouraged in all the different forms that it takes. Let me just be honest with you. Every time, I shouldn't say every time because I don't know that that's a fact. It is common, normal, and ordinary that when God's kingdom advances, the enemy tries to bring up a counter-offensive. It's the whole story of the Bible. And I want to just tell you this. If and when you decide, I'm going to dig even deeper to my walk with Jesus, I'm like, it, just expect you're going to get some pushback. I'm not guaranteeing. I'm not, I don't live by yin and yang and the whole universe and all that garbage, tchotchkes and everything else. No. In fact, you can read a lot of stories in Acts of some really awesome seasons and great joy spread through that city. And Ephesus, the word of God spread widely, but you also see there's a counteroffensive. Listen, friend, I want to tell you something. If you've recently decided to take Bible study more seriously, prayer more seriously, maybe you're reevaluating your finances and saying, you know what, I want to, I want to honor God. I want to p- truly put God first in the way I spend my money. Not after I've spent everything else and covered everything else, he can get the leftovers. I want God to have the first overs. 
And not only that, I'm going to look at the other percentage that's, you think it's yours, it's all his. I'm going to look within that and say, are there some things I sh- I, my heart says I should be doing differently with my money? I promise you, a lot of you are going to experience pushback, discouragement, frustration. The patience and perseverance you need to thrive and survive in trials and tribulations is only produced by trials and tribulations. Let me say that one more time because that's not in my notes and if I don't say it again, I'm going to forget it. The patience, the courage, the tenacity, the stick to you need to push forward in trials tribulations, when you get pushback, the only way you get that extra juice to get you through the trial, it's only found in trials and tribulations. They produce what you need to get through them. You can't sit on the sidelines and say, you know what, now I finally feel strong enough. Let me go through the pushback. You got to be in the pushback to watch Jesus show up and carry you through, not just airlift you out. Here's what I can promise you. If you follow Jesus, and like Suba said, and he's chasing you, you watch what happens when you're getting the pushback, when you're getting the discouragement. Just keep on pressing. Some of you are right there right now. You've said, Jesus, there's some things in my life you want to put in order. I'm on board. And you started going with great enthusiasm, and then all of a sudden, pushback, discouragement, some signal that you... And you're thinking... First of all, just don't think that everything's going to fall down and fall your way. Sometimes that happens, but there's also other stories in the Bible, right? But if you know that you know that you know that you're chasing after a God thing, he will preserve, he will protect, he will continue his work, even despite inevitable pushback. May you have the same boldness, tenacity, faith, courage, to follow the work of God that he's calling you to in your life, even in spite of inevitable pushback. Jesus won't leave you by yourself. He'll meet you there. Right, right, Rajiv? Right, Suba? I mean, we've heard your story. Rajiv's parents are here today. They're here to visit. Listen, on behalf of this entire family, thank you for how you've raised your son and how you love your family. They, yes, they... Your family has made so many investments, all of us and so many people. And thank you for your courageous commitment to Jesus in spite of opposition I will never understand. Thank you for that. We owe a great debt of gratitude to you. We talked about wave makers last week. That's being a wave maker. Being a parent who says, I'll raise my son to know Jesus, not even knowing that a couple hundred people on the other, halfway around the world one day are going to be benefited by the leadership of that. You don't, just don't know. But don't let discouragement overwhelm you. God will preserve. He will protect. He will continue. He gets the final word, and he wins. Amen? Amen. Why don't you bow your head and close your eyes with me? Do you want to come into, are you saved? Do you want to come into God's kingdom? Do you want to experience the transformation we talked about? Do you know, do you know you need to be saved because you know in your heart you're living wrong. You're living for you. You're living your way. You're not living God's way. You're resisting his leadership. You want to be your own leader. Do you know you need to be saved? Do you believe Jesus can save you 
And do you believe he will save you if you ask? If you say, yes, I need to be saved. Yes, I believe Jesus can save me. And yes, I believe he will save me if I ask. Then why don't you right now just use your words and ask him? He will. He'll hear you. He'll save you. He'll send his spirit to live in you and change you both instantly and day by day, gradually over time. You can be truly free today. God's waiting for you. Use your words and tell him right where you're sitting right now. You can whisper it to him. You can tell him in your thoughts. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. If you confess your sins, he's faithful. He's also just. He'll forgive you of your sins. He'll cleanse you from unrighteousness. Tell him. Maybe one's just hesitating, saying, well, Pastor, what do I say? Simple prayer. Jesus, please save me. Jesus, I've sinned. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Jesus, you're the Lord. I'll follow you. I'm done being my own Lord. Send your spirit to come live in me. Thank you for saving me. If you prayed that prayer with me this morning, you meant it then God heard it, and you're saved right here, right now. All of the life-transforming power of Jesus is in you, and you're feeling it and experiencing it right now. And it's similar but unlike anything you've ever experienced before. You don't have to do another thing. You're saved. You're gloriously saved. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, We'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.